So, the Adult Music Podcast had a much-needed night out on Friday. We did, indeed. We did, and we went out for um, kushi. Oh, yakitori, yeah. You'd say yakitori? Yeah. Kushi's the food on the stick, though. I think they'd kind of... Generally, if we say kushi, like kushikatsu, kushikatsu it's uh, deep-fried. Yeah. Yeah. Kushiyaki is, you know, usually over charcoal. But, uh, yeah, oh, I see. We specifically ate lots of birds, so... It was basically birds on a stick, yeah. and it was really good. And it a was. lot of beer, too. Man, we went in there, and I think I put away like four beers in like less than <laughs> half an hour. It was hot. It was 37 It was degrees. really hot. Yeah. They were very satisfying, but then you start getting that, that buzz mm. from the alcohol. Like, oh, man, how much longer am I going to yeah. mm. last? So lots of, it was like meat and beer. And uh, and then we switched over to some sake. Yeah, we went to sake. That was, it was really good. Yeah, that was good, too. Got to get to know what that is. And then we had a. Then I made the mistake of uh, going to the uh, Mexican place and getting a margarita. I was like, "That's three different alcohols." Usually, I try to stick with one because. Uh, and yeah. the next day, of course, I was all worn. I didn't. I didn't have a hangover or anything, but I was just kind of. Uh, I just didn't want to move, you know. So I just stayed in all day. <laughs> and then on Sunday, I was like uh, newly born, ready to ready to go. I feel like a new man. Oh, good. Yeah, I don't know how that happened, but maybe it was just the night out. The heat know. can take it out of you this time of year, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least we walked it off in between the two places, and then, um, yeah, it was yeah. a good night out. Fortunately, there weren't out. a lot of tourists around. I guess it was just too hot. They all melted or something. I think that's because of where we went, too. I, I think that guy keeps tourists out, to be honest. He, he does, kinda. yeah. <laughs> I've been going to that place for more than 20 years, so yeah. I always get a seat because they know I'm a glutton. Because they know you're going to eat like all their... Uh, yeah, and a big drink or two, so... All their bird on a stick. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a really good night. And, well, tonight we've got uh, a real interesting tour of music for you here. Yeah, we're going around the world here, which we are not doing in real life, because <laughs> we seem to be staying in Japan this summer, too. That's right. And this is going to be episode 126 okay. of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Mm. And tonight, as I said, we're going out to the fringes a little bit of what we usually do. You focus on classical and jazz music, but we're going to right. have a real big world element on the classical side. And uh, so get yeah. your passports ready for some exotic locations. Yeah, we went to some exotic locations in classical music this week. That's for sure. So if you're wondering what all that music is, if you haven't listened to it yet, in the episode description, you can find links for those recordings. There's Spotify there, there's Apple Music, and also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist where you can get all the recordings in one place, continuous, I don't know how many hours, six hours or so of music there. Yeah, that's what we did this week, six hours of music, and plus right. more, because I, I always listen to stuff I want to hear, too, sure. and preview other stuff and things like that. Yeah, so the full episode playlist is on Deezer, that's CD quality streaming from France. And if you can't see the full description, wherever you listen to us or the recording links aren't active or hard to read, just pop over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's clear and easy to follow with chapter markers for this and every other episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow us or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a music-loving friend. That's the best way for us to get new listeners can also take a moment, give us a ranking, write a short review. That helps us get listed in the music category recommendations. It's another way that new people can discover us. You can also come follow us on our Facebook page, get extra info, more new releases throughout the week, although things have slowed down for summer in jazz. There's a few things coming out later in the month I'm waiting for, but I haven't been able to get up 
any daily picks this week. wasn't too hmm. excited about anything I heard. Anyway, you can come over and see what's going on there and our artist interaction. Leave a message or comment. See our handsome faces. See my uh, my whiskey collection, not my sake collection, <laughs> but uh, from one of our get-togethers there. Do you have a sake collection? I imagine you do. It doesn't last long. You know, once you open oh, sake, uh, unlike yeah. wine, which degrades really quickly, yeah. sake is usually actually better the next day. Oh, really? Once it takes on a little bit of air, and then it yeah. goes kind of downhill from there. So. The wine's a little bit like that, too. Right? You let it breathe, and it's like... Yeah, it's more yeah, but I, a... I think it's got a shorter window. Anyway, that's what I, I found. See. Not that anything that I open sticks around for very long anyway, but <laughs> in any case. Yeah, I felt really like... Uh... Like I used to feel in college, except that I'm 57 years old, going on 58, <laughs> and you just don't recover quickly enough anymore. You got to keep up your training. Keep up. Uh, see, I'm, I can't do that. <laughs> if you have any other comments or questions you want to get in touch directly, or if you want to have a night out with some uh, good yakitori and sake, if you're in Japan, get in yeah. touch with us. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be sure to reply. And while we're talking about podcasts, we'd like to recommend another one, our friends over at the Same Difference podcast. That's two jazz fans, one jazz standard. Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra look at several versions of the same jazz standard. Each episode comes out twice a month. They play little snippets from each version, discuss the history, and they talk about what they like and don't like. And we're going to be getting together with those guys. We've got it set up. It's going to happen later this month. And yeah. We've just picked our musical selections. So, guys, if you're listening, we'll be getting back to you soon with that. Some interesting versions of uh, standards. New music, though. So we're going to kind of yeah. cover both bases with the standards and new music. But we're just going to use that as a springboard to have those yeah. guys on a guest episode here. Yeah. And uh, we'll just have a lot of fun. And we're going to make it a big party and put some uh, musical uh, snippets on our episode, too. And for I that one, I that. think yeah. we'll, we'll put it up. And if anybody complains, then we'll cut them out. But we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should try it, though. Yeah, we can do it. <laughs> Just for that one. I don't know. Sure. But if anybody wants to get into that yakitori place, uh, they have to go with us because I don't think they can get in by themselves. I'll tell you, the, uh, <laughs> the old guy who runs it, he's got a uh, you know serious <laughs> stare. You know, so. <laughs> He's always he was happy to see you, though. <laughs> you definitely want to come in behind my wallet, and then you'll have a seat, that's for sure. <laughs> anyway, we've got some uh, interesting stops to make on the uh, classical side this week. We don't have any deaths or any other news to report, so I, I guess we're just going to dust off the passports and uh, get ready for some traveling here. Where, where are we going first? Yeah, what do you do when you travel? The first thing you want to do probably is go over a bridge into a new land or new place, and we have uh, our first recording. Il Ponte di Leonardo. And the Ponte, of course, is a bridge. So Leonardo da Vinci's bridge. And let me just give you the information on this. Uh, Marco Beasley, Italian singer, is the voice. He's he's more in the tenor range, but they mm. call him voice because I think he, he just kind of, he's not operatic really when he sings. He just sings. And this is by the uh, ensemble Constantinople, yes. who are uh, East meets West sort of ensemble, directed by Kia Tabassian, who also plays the I hope I say it, setar? Setar or setter? I don't know how to say it. He also sings. And this is on the Glossa label. And this isn't the first time we've talked about them. We've talked about them before. Yes, yeah. So we're hearing this album, which I have to say is kind of, it's a different theme, but it's much the same kind of fare mm. that we had on the last one. 
Constantinople consists of eight musicians. I want to just tell you who they all are. Uh, Marco Beasley is singing. He's not in Constantinople. He's sort of the extra. Uh, the members of Constantinople are Kia Debassian, the setar voice and the director. Didem Bashar on Kanun, which is sort of a, a zither-type instrument. Tanya La Perriere on uh, Baroque violin and Viola d'Amore. I really like the name of that instrument. Mm. Viola d'Amore. The Viola of love. <laughs> Someone should make a song called The Viola of Love or something like that. Mm. Anyway, Stefano Rocco on the arch lute and Baroque guitar. Uh, Fabio Accurso on the lute. Patrick Graham on the percussion. <laughs> the percussion. On percussion. <laughs> and uh, Marco Ferrari on recorders. The Ney and the Charamella. Boy, if you have a neighbor um, who plays the drums, you might be thankful that he doesn't play the neigh. <laughs> I like the neigh, though. I like the neigh, too, but I think listening to someone practice the neigh would really put me over the top. I don't know. It's a pretty, <laughs> it's a nasal sounding kind of yeah. wind instrument, kind of like a recorder, but it's got a more nasally sound. Okay, so what's the deal with uh, Il Ponte di Leonardo? Well... It's Leonardo's bridge, and Leonardo is Leonardo da Vinci, the uh, the great genius of all time, I guess we could call him. He did everything. <laughs> okay. His genius also uh, helped inspire um, several musical programs in recent years. I'm still listening to uh, one from before the podcast started by Douce Memoir, directed by Denis Razin Dadre, called um, Leonardo da Vinci, La Musique Secrète which is a program of music that Dadra felt uh, corresponded to Leonardo's paintings. Hmm. That's another story, though, and that was from a few years ago. Anyway, check that one out. But here we have the image of a bridge between cultures uh, built into the music because we're going to hear a lot of Italian songs and also sort of Arab like poems set to music and songs as well and instrumentals. I shouldn't say Arab. I should say really Turkish. They're from the mostly from the Ottoman Empire, I think. Let's see, the um, the bridge is built into the music and into the coming together of these performers from different cultures. Constantinople is a multicultural ensemble. Building bridges between cultures is what Constantinople is all about. The ensemble, that is, not the city. Although I guess the city is too, or it was. The program here was inspired by two bridges Leonardo wanted to build. I didn't even know about this. Because hmm. you think about him, you think about Mona Lisa, you think about all the flying contraptions, but he was going to build a bridge too. One from Galata to Istanbul, and the other was a drawbridge that would cross the Bosphorus and connect Europe and Asia. Wow. Uh, Leonardo wrote about it, and he was going to do this without like suspension, okay? Like we have the suspension bridge today right. so we can build long bridges. This was going to be like the Ponte Vecchio, only really long. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Leonardo wrote about it in a letter dated 3 July 1502 to Sultan Bayezid II. All right, so there you go. There's another bridge right there right. between cultures. There's a single drawing of one of the bridges in his notebooks, and I think that might be reproduced on the uh, album cover, but I'm not sure. That just might be a design. The Sultan, however, never answered Leonardo's letter where he proposes the bridges. Uh, the bridges were never built. And interestingly enough, Bayezid, Sultan Bayezid, later invited Michelangelo to take on the project, but Michelangelo refused. Oh. Okay, so I, he should have gone with Leonardo there. Yeah. Anyway, Constantinople say that they have redrawn and built these bridges in the music you hear on this program. Okay. Uh, all compositions are from the time of Leonardo da Vinci, and the music consists of Italian frottole from the 15th and 16th century, so they're like popular songs, to uh, Genovese songs. 
And from Ottoman instrumental compositions to Persian poems by Hafez Rumi and Amir Kozrov. All right. And we start this album with a little bit of spice. Aga Momen, born in the 16th century, a piece called Kupare. I hope I'm saying these right. Um, <laughs> this was found in the Contemir Collection, number 163. It's an instrumental, and it starts out with some pretty exotic and rather unexpected sounds. There's a ticking plucked harmonic, and I'm guessing the lute playing a modal melody. Could be the setar, but I'm, I, it sounds like a lute to me. It's an Iranian lute-like instrument. It's plucked, but it kind of looks like a like a long, almost like banjo-like instrument. We hear the uh, kanun in there, it's, which is a zither-like instrument, and at about the 1 minute 30 second mark, the percussion comes in with a deep bass arch lute sounding fantastic in its dimensionality and provides a thick bass floor. If you have a um, subwoofer, you're going to love this. As always with this ensemble, the recording quality is excellent. Everything is really upfront. It's almost like a pop mm. music recording that way, except that it's acoustic. So these sounds are very rich, and they're but they're very upfront. You're not really getting a lot of uh, sense of depth from this. It seems like it's all right in front of you. Uh, from 225, uh, you can hear the kanun. The bass drum resonates beautifully. It's a fully detailed performance performed slowly and hypnotically as so much of the music from the East uh, comes across to me. It's all very hypnotic music. They mm. really like those slower kind of hypnotic beats back in the time. Of course, I'm less familiar with it than I am with Western music, so I mean, I guess classical music sounds the same to certain people from that era, but not to me because I kind of <laughs> know a bit about it, although it can sound the same depending on how good it is. Anyway, track two, we go to Italy, well, kind of, Bartolomeo Tromboncino, Great names wow. in this era, huh? 1470 to after 1534, so this is a long time ago. This is called Nonval Aqua al Mio Gran Foco. I really love these titles. Water isn't going to work against my big fire. You know, the Ooh. one in his heart, of course, yeah. that's uh, burning with passion for somebody else. Anyway, so we hear Marco Beasley here on vocals. Uh, the lute starts this out with a catchy, appealing melody. And we also hear what is probably the kanun. Beasley has acquired some new colors in his voice as time has gone on. I remember hearing him back in the early 2000s on a record with um, Ensemble Daedalus, uh, which was Canzoni Villanesca alla Napoletana, which is really great. He does Neapolitan songs on that. And he's really, of course, good at them, being from the area. He's recorded up close here and boosted in the mix. He's really right up front. The accompaniment is usually rushing, intertwined, plucked string lines. At the 2 minute and 20 second mark, the mixed ensemble come in with a more eastern sound and timbre and rhythm, indicating that this Italian song isn't that far away from the music of culturally different lands. The rhythm makes the tune sound rather hypnotic, really, and I find myself wondering what this would sound like if it were accompanied, say, only by a lute. Hmm. Okay, but we're building bridges here. These are going to be sort of um, like a cultural mix of... Um, Ideas. We're going to hear a lot of those East meets West sort of instruments. Track three is by an anonymous composer from the 16th century, Starala Ben Kusi. Um, I'm okay like this. <laughs> okay, This suits me, something like that. I don't know. One of the reasons I seek out Marco Beasley recordings is because he often records Italian songs I've never heard before. Uh, like all of the ones on this album, for example. I've never heard any of these. This starts with uh, percussion and an Eastern feel in the Kanun and setar. I like that Beasley and the ensemble sound more flexible and Western in rhythm in this piece. The Eastern part 
comes in the timbres used. It's interesting. Uh, the accompaniment is lively and sometimes leans toward the chaotic. There's a lot going on behind Beasley. There's lots of percussion, even something sounding like a finger cymbal. Track three, it's a fun track. Track four is um, the director of Constantinople's composition, Kia Tabassian, called Parvaz. It's a poem of Amir Khusro, who lived in 1253 to 1325. We're going way back yeah. here. The music is Tabassian's, I guess, so it's modern. I don't, I don't know if this is a composition or improvised, but the text is uh, given in Arabic writing in the booklet, yeah. but there's an English translation. Yes, I can't follow the... Uh, first of all, you have to read it right to left. But if so, even if I knew the syllables, I wouldn't really be able to follow the text. I just have to listen and read the English. We're hearing the bode. No, we're not hearing a setar here. It doesn't get bowed. Um, we're hearing the kanun, though, I think. Um, there's bell-like percussion, too. There are some interesting pauses in the rhythm. I'm guessing that the um, the bowed instrument is a viola d'amore made to sound more like a, like an Eastern instrument. Hmm. There's some interesting pauses in the rhythm. I need to see a video of this to really know what's going yeah. on. There's some interesting pauses in the rhythm, which you can hear in the second minute. Beasley comes in singing the text, which is in Arabic. And I'm wondering if he speaks a bit of this language, because he seems to sing in it quite a bit. Is he doing this phonetically, or does he actually yeah, I wonder. know a few of the words? Okay, I don't know. The ending is played with a bit more abandonment by Constantinople and winds up being exciting. He sang like Arabic songs on the other album, too. Track 5, anonymous composer from the 16th century, Pandemilio Caldo. This one means, um, like, warm bread <laughs> yeah. is really what the name <laughs> of the song bread is. is what it's all about, yeah. Yeah, and it's about bread. It's, um, it's a really fun track. There's flute-like instruments here and probably a neigh in there, too. The lead sounds like a recorder played with all sorts of wavering tones, and Beasley comes in with a folk-like melody. The song is about buying bread. <laughs> That's what it's about. Yep. And it's given a lively dance rhythm. It's basically a, a bread seller singing his, uh, you mm. know, his wares out to attract people to him. Track six, Ambrolio Dalza. Saltarello e piva. Now, when I hear a saltarello, I kind of know it's going to be like this really quick dance kind of piece. Okay? This one comes from around 1508. It's an instrumental. And it sounds like a traditional lute starting it off with the canoon coming in with a melody. There's a Baroque guitar in there, too. It's an Italian saltarello, which is a dance. But the instrumentation gives it an Eastern flavor. It was really kind of interesting to hear it this way, really. It's also surprisingly long. It's seven minutes. I'm guessing that Constantinople is improvising on it a bit. Saltarellos usually are pretty short, like a minute to two minutes long. Um, so I think they're improvising a bit here. In fact, there's a percussion solo in the fourth minute that's absolutely not in the score. <laughs> anyway, it's pretty compelling and ear-catching. At 5.36, you hear the theme come back. Track 7, an anonymous composer. Sera nello cor mio. What is it? What was this? Sera? It will be in my heart? Maybe? Okay, this is a harp-like playing for what I'm guessing is the canoon accompanied by a lute and Baroque guitar. Now, I'm saying the lute. Some of this could be the setar. I'm not really sure what that sounds like compared to a lute. Beasley sings sweetly here, giving a folk song-like curve to the melody. The string instruments get a combined solo section in one of the verses. Then Beasley returns for the last verse. Track 8, we're back to Bartolomeo Tromboncino with additional lyrics by Marco Beasley. The song is Tu Dormi, You Sleep. And then um, Kia Debassian's composition is sort of um, 
cut in with that. Yeah. Uh, Ruz Oshab, which is a poem of Rumi, who lived from 1207 to 1273. So he wrote the music that accompanies this poem. So Beasley sings the opening verse a cappella, and he oddly starts out in what sounds like Arabic with the Rumi poem, Ruz Oshab. <laughs> and I'm sure I didn't say that right. But um, if any Arabic listeners are out there, you can uh, let me know how to say it. Then it goes into Italian for the second verse, so then we're hearing the uh, tromboncino track or tune. He alternates the Rumi poem with the tromboncino song. It's all a cappella. The two texts have a similar theme, a lover in pain because he's thinking of his lover. In the Italian text, though, it's never directly stated. Uh, the woman he's talking about may be dead as he's saying he watches over her as she sleeps, and it torments him. Track 9. Anonymous Composer. So stato nell'inferno, I am in hell, which is a poem of Feo <laughs> Belcari. Um, this has a neigh and a lot of Eastern instruments in it, even though it's an Italian song, with percussion driving the piece as well. So this is real East meets West stuff. Beasley's vocal has a highly confident swashbuckling sound to it here. Track 10, anonymous, 15th century. Semai pire mei furush, which is a poem of Hafez. I've never, I've heard Arabic spoken, but I don't know anything about it. I can't say these words. This starts with a harp-like kanun, uh, though its timbre comes out like a harp with spices to it. Uh, the instrument has a long solo section at the beginning with some intriguing virtuosic runs as well. The percussion come in at 153, and we have a deep bass drum that again, like the one in track one, resonates richly on the recording. The kanun continues to solo while the rhythm which is hypnotic, asserts its heavy, bass-rich tread. At 2.49, the vocal comes in. The poem is in Arabic. It's a song encouraging pleasure because spring is here. I like Beasley's vowel melismas. They're more like shivers when he does them. Um, on this track, when you hear them, you'll know what I mean. He seems to enjoy the different sounds he's making, and the vocal caught my ear in a positive way, too. Uh, the rhythm is hypnotic, as is so often the case with Near Eastern music. I do love the instrumental and percussive detail on the recording. Track 11. Anonymous composer from the 16th century, Cavalca Sinisbaldo. Something about riding a horse, I guess. I don't know what this is. A tune that ends with a knight. Yeah, there you go. I got it. It ends with a knight getting it on with a maiden. It's, that's what uh, songs were about in the 16th century. Did you check out the lyrics here? I did. <laughs> there's, there's one line. You just have to quote it. Yeah, I, I think I did. <laughs> okay, <laughs> tell me if this is it. Okay, well, the thing is, she's, she's, the, the knight's getting it on with this, this hot maiden. And then there's a prioress and abbess who are both, you know, living, I guess, the monastery nearby, watching them. And they want the same from him because... They're all hot and bothered, too, living in the uh, nunnery. Mm. And the last two lines in the song are, She shook her butt so vigorously it could have ground stones to dust. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one, right? Yeah, yeah I laughed out jumped, loud when I read that one. Yeah. That jumped out at me, too, because I had an image of that in my head, and I was like, oof. <laughs> <laughs> Only you had to imagine like that was like an, like the prioress, I think, was the one doing that. Yeah. So you got to imagine she's like 70 years old. Anyway, the instrumentation is pretty full, with a lot of winds of the harsher kind. There's a violin, too. The song comes across with a Neapolitan rhythm, and Beasley puts this across as though born to it as he was. Track 12, anonymous 16th century, Hijaz Semai, which is an instrumental. This may be a viola d'amore opening the piece, but it sounds Eastern. 
It's got a long solo at the beginning, and I rather like the aspect of the album where the individual musicians get an introduction uh, that they play by themselves. It's got a slow, leaning toward mid-tempo, eastern rhythm with percussion. The tempo speeds up a bit just before the three-minute mark and keeps that tempo to the end. And then we end with Gian Piero Aloisio. Aloisio, yeah, that's it. Gian Piero Aloisio. Noi che semper navegemmo. That's a dialect. Um, <laughs> we who always, what, navigate? I don't know what that is. It's a, it's a dialect word. After a poem by an anonymous, Anonimo Genovese. I don't know if that means like it's an anonymous Genovese guy or if that's actually his name. <laughs> I can't really tell. Anyway, this may be the setar we're hearing at the beginning with a brief solo introduction. The text is in an Italian dialect, and the piece soon takes on an Eastern rhythm to carry the vocal. The text counts the numerous dangers that sailors have at sea and concludes that God is their only hope to arrive safely at their destination. In the second minute, there's a solo section featuring wind instrument, the ne, and a Baroque violin. The ne melody, if that's what it is, is rather touching here. And this gets carried over to the melody and violin accompaniment after the solo section. Beasley sounds like he's at the extreme of his vocal range here when he goes for, for the high notes of his piece. He's, he's a singer with a beautiful sound to his voice, but I don't know that he's going to get up there too high. Anyway, this is an album that sounds like what a bridge between cultures would sound like. It's unique sounding. Uh, new elements are formed, uh, but some elements, of course, are lost, such as the intimacy of the Western art songs or the Western sense of intimacy. And I'm sure something's lost in the... Um, Eastern songs as well, which I'm not as familiar with. Uh, whether you like this will probably say a lot about how you feel about the world and its meeting of cultures. Um, this is always a hit or miss affair, as <laughs> as we know from jazz, because <laughs> <laughs> it never seems to work in jazz. I don't know. Um, but I think Constantinople and Beasley do it well. They've got a great sound. Beasley may not be the most nuanced singer, but I find his vocal timbre appealing, and I'm always happy to listen to him. The recording is fantastic, and all instruments register clearly and pleasingly in timbre. Okay, I'll be honest, I love these Medium Culture albums when they're as well done as this, but once the recording is done, I always want to go home, to retreat into the familiarity of the culture I'm more familiar with, despite my happiness at hearing these interpretations. So what I mean is, when I hear the, like, the Italian songs interpreted sort of with the Eastern instruments, I kind of always want to go back and hear them played with Western instruments so I can get like a, a feel for them in the Western sense, especially these since I don't really know these songs. It's like when I hear an earlier piece quoted in a later one, I always want to go back to the earlier piece to make sure it's still there, I guess. I don't know. I like the intimacy that Western acoustic instruments can bring to these works. This is a beautifully performed album anyway. Very enjoyable and lively. The ensemble are totally dedicated to the music. It almost comes across as a world music album, as you said, in the best sense. Um, I like these approaches to music. I think I like being home more, though. These are like just a <laughs> an occasional excursion, you know? One thing, I'm pretty sure, track eight, that's actually a vocal duet. I think it's Tabassian singing the Arabic Yeah, that parts. would be Tabassian, right? Yeah, because yeah, uh, right. listening, to, I could hear the positioning different for each vocalist. Okay. Uh, there. Were so, you in headphones? Yeah, I was listening in headphones. Yeah, I had the house speakers going for this. Yeah, it was kind of, it was interesting that exchange of Italian and then Arabic, it's kind of sandwiched uh, yeah. in those two pieces there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, exotic instruments, modal harmonies, Italian, Arabic. It's a real 
interesting mix of elements. Uh, as with all Constantinople recordings we've heard before, it takes you on a journey to new places with each track, and it really challenges you, or at least me, <laughs> to uh, think about <laughs> what I'm hearing. Uh, but it's interesting and enjoyable. I think with these, and I've done so before, go check out and see which tracks and which songs are available on YouTube so you can figure out which instruments are playing you know these sounds if you're not familiar with the tones and you know textures of all these different stringed instruments and the percussion instruments as well it all sounds really good but it's sort of outside of our normal you know western instrumentation and uh, sometimes the sounds especially when they get really thick yeah, it's, you're kind of wondering, what's making that sound? What's making this yeah, sound? Yeah, I was so. wondering that quite often on this. Th there are videos on YouTube. I, mean, I guess we could check them out. All right, so moving on, we're going to get a um, another actually fairly exotic uh, recording here. Uh, Spanish Light, released uh, just on last July. This features Francisco Fulana on the violin and Alba Ventura on the piano, and it's released by Orchid Classics. Okay, so on this album, all the music is Spanish, and both artists are Spanish, too. And let me tell you, that helps this music a lot. Mm. Now, Spain is part of Europe, but it has a very sort of complex uh, history. The Moors ruled it for a long time, So, it's, and um, what do we call them? The Romani people, we should call them. What we used to call gypsies uh, were there, too. And they, they left a lot of their own cultures behind, mm. and these all got mixed in with Spanish culture. So it's quite a melting pot of a lot of um, different styles is Spanish music, but it's identifiably Spanish. <laughs> you hear it um, as Spanish. It doesn't sound like anything else in Europe, really, though. Francisco Fulana is a native of Mallorca in the Balearic Islands of Spain. Alba Ventura was born in Barcelona, and her bio says that she is heir to the great legacy of the Spanish school of pianism, represented by the tradition of the Academia Marshall, founded by Enrique Granados in 1901. And we're going to hear a Granados piece on this album, too. The interpretative style was preserved by Granados' disciple, Frank Marshall. Oh, that's why it's called Academia Marshall. Okay. And transmitted to Ventura by Carlota Garriga and none other than Alicia de la Rocha, the great Spanish pianist whose recordings of uh, Albanese's Iberia and of a lot of the Granados piano works are my go-to for those um, pieces. They're just so fantastic. So we're in excellent hands with the Spanish chamber music, which is little known outside of Europe, or at least not played often enough. Okay, this starts with a pretty big piece, uh, Joaquin Turina. His violin sonata number two, Sonata Española. This is Opus 82. Turina wrote this piece in 1934, not long after being appointed professor of composition at the Madrid Conservatory in 1930. It uses Spanish folk music throughout, hence its title. In it, Andalusian and Gypsy melodies are harmonized in a manner that reflects Parisian experiments in pushing the boundaries of tonality. Yes, a lot of these Spanish composers, Turin is one of them, Granados another, spent a lot of time in France, where uh, Spanish music was really in vogue, and they picked up those um, French harmonies mm. that uh, Debussy and Ravel and other composers of the sort were... Um, putting into their music. It's really intoxicating. And between the, the Spanish shapes of the uh, melodies and rhythms and those just fantastic harmonies, this music really is uh, something to hear. The first movement, lento. This movement is a variation form, which is a really unusual way uh, to start a piece, although Mozart has done it. But it's used in Spanish music a lot, this sort of opening with a set of variations. 
and this has happened in Spanish music as far back as the 16th century. It starts with a lot of passion in the violin, and Fulana brings out the passion with his beautiful tone. He can really get that mm. attack that makes you, you know, pay attention. Uh, the recording isn't very close, but it's close enough that we don't get much reverb. There's a sense of space, though, more like a sense of room depth, I would say. The piece quietens a bit after the impassioned opening, but it leaves a big impression, that opening, uh, for a solo violin soliloquy. Ventura, the pianist, gets a rather poetic set of chords to play solo, which she performs admirably. This is an intoxicating mix of Spanish melody and French harmony, really. Each variation changes the profile of the music noticeably. I have to say, I'm constantly being drawn in by Fulana's phrasing and beautiful tone. The duos sound fantastic together, matching and complementing each other well, and very idiomatically, and that's the really important thing. A lot of times, Spanish um, native people are really the best um, musicians to be playing this music, and that is the case here. They just capture all the Spanish flavor of these works extremely well in the way they shape the uh, melodies and in their um, dynamics as well. Um, the variations themselves are all appealing. Beautiful soft tone on both violin and piano at the end. Track 2, movement 2, Vivo. The opening grabs the ear with Fulana passionately playing a rising line with quick tremolo-like bowing. He gets feeling and technique into that line, and Ventura's playing here is absolutely wrapped so that the passion leaps out of the overall sound. The duo gives the rhythm a dance quality that I can imagine other performers missing. It's pretty subtle, but full of character. Again, the understanding of the Spanish idiom, or perhaps Andalusian or Romani idiom of the music, pays enormous dividends in this movement. And the final movement, Adagio moving to Allegro Moderato. It starts out rather meditatively, with sustained double-stopped chords in the violin and a rising line in the piano. After that, an idiomatic Spanish melody is heard in the violin, together with smoldering passion. The piano leaves the passion here to the violinist, echoing the lines idiomatically, minus the passion, but with all musicality intact. Ventura has a slight anticipation to her attack on the piano that makes the rhythm really come to life in her playing. Uh, the lighter section at 3.30 comes across idiomatically as well. Uh, Ventura gets a particularly Spanish rhythm to play at around 4.20 and gives it all the Spanish flavor built into it. It's a really great performance of this piece, and surely the best I've heard uh, of it, but I haven't heard many. I would say this is the best performance on the album, really, and I mm. think uh, everybody should hear it. Sample this, tracks one through three. Track four, Pablo de Sarasat, is the uh, one of the great um, violinists of the 20th century, or really the 19th century, I should say, uh, the late 19th century. Uh, Sarasate was Basque, like Ravel's mother. And he came from Pamplona in Navarre. He was one of the great violin virtuosos of his time. Uh, his most famous works are the Carmen Fantasy, which we heard um, recently, and his Spanish Dances, of which this is, this is one of them. It comes from the second volume of Dances, Opus 22, written in 1878 during Sarasate's first Scandinavian tour and dedicated to Moravian violinist Wilma Neruda. Okay, the opening rhythm is again idiomatically played with a slight retard before the chord changes. We're right in that Spanish vibe. And then Fulana comes in with his warmly expressive tone and Spanish feel, capturing all of the Spanish idiosyncrasies of the score in his playing and adding some passion as well. 
I, I can really say this throughout the album. Um, beautifully paced and realized interpretation, sounding Spanish to its core. From 2.30 on, the piece has a dancing rhythm that brings the piece to its end. Gorgeous ending, high note in the violin. The fifth track was kind of the one I liked the least, but it's still good. Let me explain. This is also Pablo de Sarasate, Zagoiner Weizen, Opus 20, Eres Gitanos, Gypsy or Romani, I guess we'd say, airs or songs. This is also among Sarasate's most famous works. It's a conflation of Romani music with Hungarian folk music. It's originally for violin and orchestra and is in one continuous movement divided into different sections, all of which have a distinct character. Uh, this arrangement is by Sarasate himself. He recorded it with Joan Manen at the piano in 1904, and we'll hear a Manen composition at the end of this piece. Now, the thing is, if you listen to that old Sarasate recording, you're going to be like, have your mind blown by the the charisma and absolute presence of the violinist as he just lets off these violin fireworks in this piece. In this particular recording, we get beautiful technique, but we don't get the we don't quite get the fireworks. We we get it, you know, Falana is absolutely capable of playing this, but there's something, yeah, you know, the electricity I I felt like was missing mm. in this. Anyway, it's a rumbling piano accompaniment at the beginning under some pretty adventurous and, of course, very idiomatic violin playing. No, no problem there for Falana. In fact, no problem really with any of this. He has to show some technique in this piece, though, and he does, while keeping the idiom intact, which is pretty amazing in itself. But, as I said, he's not quite on the knife edge that some of the great violinists of the past were in recording this. It's his idiomatic phrasing, rather, that makes this performance so appealing. I like Falana's harmonics in the third minute. He's got beautiful tone. He's passionate, adequately charismatic, but not absolutely charismatic. And this piece really demands charisma. Um, no real complaints about the performance, though. It's just not electrifying. <laughs> it's always musical, though, and that's important and what makes it appealing. Toward the end, in the fifth and sixth minutes, the piece begins to drag. But we get some uh, fleet playing for the final section, starting at around 6.56. This ending section underlines my point that this performance is more musical than electrifying, which is fine with me, really. Elements come across well, but don't have me on the edge of my seat. Now, I'm not saying I don't want to trade being electrified for musical quality. I want both, because I'm a selfish listener. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? We should be demanding, because then people will do it. Anyway, track six, Enrique Granados, one of my favorite composers. I love this guy. His violin sonata, H-127. He was a, Granados was a Catalan composer. Sadly, one of the things he's famous for is the way he died. He um, died, first of all, because he accepted a recital invitation when he was in New York. All right. And because of the recital, he missed his boat back to Spain. So huh. he had to take another boat, which went to England. And then he uh, boarded the passenger ferry SS Sussex for Dieppe in France. And on the way across the English Channel, it was torpedoed by a German U-boat, and Granados and his wife both drowned mm. after some sort of mishap with lifeboats. So he lost a great talent there. He was really young at the time. Uh, this single movement violence sonata, anyway, let's just forget that. <laughs> and then <laughs> I just said it, and we can't forget it. Uh, this single movement violence sonata was written uh, for the French violinist Jacques Thibault, with whom... Granados regularly performed. It starts right after the Sarasata, and it begins with a quiet bass note, then a long pause, followed by a chord. The violin plays its opening melody lightly and with tender expression. The piece goes on in this rather quiet, wandering way until the fourth minute, 
when there's an increase in dynamic and emotion as the violin leaps into a higher range. Fulana's phrasing is always beautiful, and that's a big plus in this piece, where the listener could get lost in lesser hands, since it's a very long single-movement work. By the eighth minute, we're hearing sunnier, more dancing material, and by the ninth minute, we're in full romantic, passionate mode. This is a piece I'm not too familiar with, and while it's appealing on first listen, especially as played here, it sounds like uh, multiple listens will be more and more rewarding. I can hear that there's a lot in this. Track 7 and 8, Edward Toldra. Uh, seis sonetos. Toldra was Catalan, and his music is rooted in the harmonies of Granados and Grieg, but frequently follows the contours and rhythms of Catalan folk music. The two works here are movements four and six of his six sonnets for violin and piano from 1921-1922. The fourth of these is the one we hear on track seven, Horacio Almeg, Supplication to the Month of May. Very melodic and folk-like. I, I keep saying Falana. I should say Fayana for the double L. Hmm. I wish I could go back and change that now, but <laughs> too late now. Fayana uses his lighter tone for this. There's interplay between the piano and violin. This is a refreshing and appealing piece right from the start. The piece itself is arranged so that the piano gets quite a bit of melodic material as well, and the duo shape it beautifully throughout. And the uh, track eight is um, movement six, La Fonte, which is the spring. This has a warmly animated, folk-like sense of anticipation. The violin gets a folk-like winding line over a droning piano bass with some extra harmony. Here the violin has most of the main material, which is mostly figuration with melodic material buried in it. Again, I'm taken by how Fuyana, I'm going to say it right from now on, Fuyana shapes his melodies so appealingly and gives vibrant life to the repeated notes at the beginnings of his phrases in the first minute. Lovely light high chord rolls in the piano at the end. And then at the end we get, uh, well not quite yet, track 9, Jean Manen. Caprice Catalan number three. Manen was a Catalan uh, violinist. Um, he was admired by R Richard Strauss and Wagner, and their influence is heard in his orchestral output. This comes from 1899, and it's one of his four Catalan caprices. The violin starts this solo up in the high end. There's some double stopping as the line descends. There's a smoldering feel once the double stops appear. At 111, we hear the piano playing a chord pattern in which each chord is played twice. Ventura has a knack for bringing life to what could just be repeating patterns in the way she shapes them via phrasing and touch. She's mostly an accompaniment here, with Fayana melodizing most of the way. At 525, a new theme starts in the piano, and there's a rather energetic dialogue between the piano and violin, where one repeats the other's lines. There are some pretty changes of textures in the section. The material in the eighth minute sounds like it could have been taken with more energy, but it's highly virtuosic, especially considering Foyana's pizzicati playing while he's bowing the melody. The ending is fine, not as explosive as it probably should be. Track 10. Now on the booklet note, it kind of lists this without a space under Jean Manen's name, but it's actually not by that composer. It's a, an anonymous... Um, Catalan Christmas songs, traditional, El Cant des Ocelles, which means Song of the Birds. It's adapted by Francisco Fuyana from the accompaniment made by Catalan cellist Pablo Casals. The piece was made famous by Casals, who played his arrangement at the start of every recital during his exile from Francoist Spain. It has become, as a result, a symbol of Catalonia itself. The violin starts this solo, it's beautifully played, and the piano comes in to accompany 
at the end. It's just a nice, pretty way to end the album. And I want to say, all in all, um, this is how it's done, folks. Or mostly, anyway. Aside from the wonderful music, Francisco Fuyana's beautiful, dusky, old-school tone and idiomatic playing make this album eminently listenable and enjoyable, as does Alba Ventura's totally idiomatic piano playing. This album was a pleasure from beginning to end, and anyone wanting to hear what these pieces should sound like in their Spanish idiom can start here. The duo is best in the more melodic pieces. Foyana can get a fair amount of passion out of these pieces, but while he meets the ferocious demands of Sarasate's Zagoinerweisen, he doesn't put it over the top like so many of the greats do. And also in Manen's Caprice Catalan, he's got the technique, but doesn't quite reach the charismatic levels that this piece can draw out of people. No matter, though, it's an idiomatically delivered performance, and he puts the Granada Sonata across exceptionally well. Uh, the best performance I've heard of this piece, though of course I haven't heard this one before. What's missing is that last bit of virtuosic charisma from the violin in Zagoyner Weizen and Manen's Caprice Catalan, but this is an album to hear if you're looking for Spanish music played in an idiomatically Spanish way. And I should also mention the uh, Turina piece, which was easily my favorite on the album. This is an easy one to like. I think it's got a lot of appeal for the melodic content. These Spanish melodies are great, and they're interpreted and phrased just perfectly, as you said here. The music's passionate, melodic, and it's got that touch of French harmony in a lot of mm. spots, which yeah. uh, really goes together. It's a nice combination of uh, things. So instantly identifiable as Spanish melodies, but with these kind of magical Harmony touches with French influence there. Uh, it's all phrased and interpreted really well. The two play together. I really enjoy his violin tone. There's a lot of really high register parts in here, but they never become shrill. They're always sweet to the ear and uh, really enjoyable. And sometimes, you know, you know how I am with violin. <laughs> sometimes it gets to me. <laughs> I never felt that way at all in this recording. Well, he's got that old school tone yeah, too really that really tone. makes it appealing. I like that. Yeah, and some of this was familiar to me, and there were some pieces I hadn't heard before. I thought as a program it worked really well, and uh, I think to even casual classical music listeners, anyone who likes Spanish melodies is going to enjoy this one a lot. And Francisco, please uh, forgive me for mispronouncing your name. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now I have my work cut out for me on this next one. <laughs> oh, boy. This is a contemporary composer, American composer, Brian Baumbush, born in 1987. So he's pretty young, wow. boy. And that kind of amazes me because he's sort of like, he's a seems to be a real polymath, but he knows a lot about gamelan music. And I would have thought that interest in that had gone away, but no. Hmm. Anyway, this is an album called Chemistry for Gamelan and String Quartet, released back in May. I've been sitting on this for a while, so I was wondering <laughs> if I wanted to do it. There was no way I was going to do this while we were working. Cause, uh... Anyway, this is um, performed by Nataswara, who are an Indonesian uh, gamelan ensemble, and Jack Quartet. Jack is all capital letters. And this is on uh, the American label New World Records, from whom I have a lot of um, really old recordings of Marc-Andre Amlan before he was on Hyperion. Anyway, the CD booklet notes were kindly provided to me by Lisa Calden at New World Records. Thank you, Lisa. I have to say, they're pretty technical. Um, <laughs> the opening describes the instruments used and rather assumes prior familiarity with the elements of a gamelan, which I don't really have. I, was, I had read about it years and years ago, like decades ago, really. Mm. 
because I was interested in really all sorts of music. And then I haven't thought about it since, so it was kind of coming back a little bit, but um, I certainly don't have any really deeply technical understanding of how this music works. I have a basic idea. The key thing in this music is going to be rhythm and rhythmic spaces. And the actual timbre of the instruments are important too, but I would say the rhythm really comes first. Anyway, the first set of works, or the first work, is in nine sections. It's called Prisms for Gene Davis, composed 2018 to 2021. So this is a pretty recent piece. It's the most recent work on the album. All right, now it's written, you really need to read the booklet for this and do some research. It's written for what Baumbusch refers to as Gen 2 instruments, and you can see a photo of them on page 3 of the CD booklet. All right, so from what I understand, now if I get this wrong, somebody at New World Records or Mr. Baumbusch himself can correct me, Baumbusch has created two sets of his own personal gamelan instruments, which are referred to as American gamelan. The first one are called the uh, light bulb instruments, and they have some odd shapes and get some odd sort of um, harmonics out of them. And the second one, uh, which is the Gen 2, which is the one we're hearing on these on this piece, is more like a traditional gamelan, although it's not the same. So he's, these are a little closer to the Balinese gamelan. Anyway, the instruments are mostly standard shape and give rise when struck to a distinctive array of partials, not from the harmonic series, so... You want to listen to the, the ghostly tones above the struck notes, okay, to hear those. It's kind of interesting. Um, this work involves a separate set of gamelan instruments from those. We're going to hear the other ones in a piece later on. It's an exploration of Balinese compositional heterophony, though structured to contain irregular and compound meters that are less common in Balinese music. So this isn't really straightforward Balinese music at all. Prisms can be thought of as a refraction of Baumbusch's relationship to both American minimalism and Balinese music. Yes, American minimalism, in, in fact, I thought of, um, when you think of Philip Glass and Steve Reich, you do hear those pulses that mm. Reich uses. I also thought a lot of, uh, in this and mostly in the very last piece, Conlon Nancaro, who's uh, an American composer who's really famous for his player piano works. He would he like punched holes in the player piano papers to make these pieces um, do odd things rhythmically oh, and to have like so many fingers that a, a human being could never possibly play. Hmm. And uh, they they sound pretty interesting if you ever get to hear them. You just put that piano roll in the um, in the player piano and it just goes <laughs> crazy. <laughs> just the sounds you hear, unbelievable. Um, some pianists have actually done like four handed versions of these works, but you have to hear that. I think the piano player rolls. Gene Davis, by the way, the person who's named in the um, title, is a minimalist color field painter. And you can see um, his work um, on the uh, cover. We'll get to that in a minute. You can think of the pieces landing between the world of Philip Glass and Steve Reich, as I mentioned, and the world of Balinese music. There's a driving pulse throughout that seems to share similarities with Steve Reich's short, melodic, rhythmic cells. And that was the thing I really grabbed onto because it was familiar to me so I could kind of follow the work more by hearing that pulse. So you might want to try to do that. It's all the way in the bass. Baumbusch wants us to pay attention to time scales far longer than Reich's punchy grooves. Prisms for Gene Davis engages with such lengthy time scales, which can be so long that many people, unless attending carefully to signaling gong strokes along the way, may barely notice that repetition has occurred. 
I was actually having a bit of trouble with this, but I was mm. doing okay, I guess. This lengthy, unnoticeable element puts me in mind of isorhythm, a technique used in the medieval period. So in the medieval time when people used isorhythm, they would make this, I guess, like 67 note rhythms. And you can never follow when it's going to repeat because it's just so long. So I imagine this is, it's not similar, but it's sort of the same sort of idea. Each prism is based on a sequence of 12 skeletal melody tones, which are heard in the lowest pitched instruments in any given movement. So listen to the bass first and you'll hear those. There's actually a table in the booklet showing how the tones are configured in each movement. And it's pretty helpful and probably very helpful if I really try to study it. But a lot of this music was so fast I couldn't possibly follow a lot of these um, patterns. I don't know what people who are just going to listen to this via streaming will make of this. Although I have to say, I really enjoyed this album. You know, without even being technically understanding everything that's going on in the music. Anyway, the first piece is uh, Prism 1 Tetra. And right away you're just struck by the beautiful tone from the opening instrument, and all hell breaks loose with higher tones playing at high speed, and then again the tempo slows down. There's a pulse on a dampened instrument that makes this followable. It's very pretty. I'm looking at the charts on page 10 to 11 of the uh, CD, and I'm afraid I'm going to need some more guidance to understand <laughs> the complex <laughs> elements they present. That said, as a listening experience, one can enjoy the tonality of the ensemble, I'd recommend keeping an ear attentive to the rhythmic intervals, something we're not used to doing in the West. This is certainly a unique listening experience and an immediately enjoyable one, too. So listen to the instruments that kind of sound the same, like the pulsing bass and the, the patterns being made by the higher instruments. That's kind of the way those things kind of interlock are sort of what's important, or don't interlock for that matter. Okay, track two, Prism 2, Penta, it continues with a pause and features very fast figures in the upper frequencies, though the pulse is slow. Listen low down on the bass end for that. I really feel like not being able to see this performed takes away from some of my understanding of it. Anyway, track three, Prism 3, Hexa, has a quick change of patterns, again no pause. It starts quietly and more slowly, though with a fast pulse. I do like the rhythmic relationships I'm hearing between different parts of the ensemble. Movement 4, Prism 4 Tetra, has a medium pulse. The core tone sounding rather muffled at the bottom is heard every 32 pulses, which I'm actually having trouble following in this one. I'm not counting 32 pulses. I'm just counting on that uh, core tone to sound in the bass. Movement 5, Prism 5 Hepta, has a fast pulse and similar overall to Prism 4. With the new fast pulse, the gonging core tone is heard every 70 tones. The higher instruments are very rapid. I think you want to listen to this music the opposite way that Western people generally do, from the bass up. Prism 6, Penta, is the sixth movement. This one starts rather fast, but actually gradually slows down as it goes in what is an amazing interlocking effect. I've actually heard gamelan orchestras from Bali do this, and it's really fantastic. Mm. Just the, the synchronism of, of this as the tempo slows down is really incredible. It then speeds up again at around the 42nd mark. This slowing and speeding are characteristic of the movement, and the fluctuating tempo is called ombak and is apparently characteristic of gamma music. Well, it is. I just said I heard it. Tempo is marked slow to medium. It's very cool, and I would say sample this track, track 6. Track 7, Prism 7, Hexa. The lower end establishes rhythms, and the bell-like higher end comes in. The lowest bass instrument gongs 
the 12 tones of the cycle out every 48 pulses, there's some pretty cool rhythmic patterns that emerge out of the higher instruments relationships. Track 8, Prism 8, Tetra. The fast tempo is immediately heard, the chord tones appearing every 32 pulses, so it's easily discernible here at this speed. This particular movement goes by very fast. Then we get to Prism 9, Nona, the ninth track, which is nicknamed Raspberry Icicle. The movement was composed several years after the previous movements and takes full advantage of the special Balinese sensitivities to long time scales. Each core melody tone is placed 90 pulses apart. That's a lot. Uh, corresponding to 11 seconds of clock time. So every 11 seconds you'll hear that core melody tone deep in the bass. That's well beyond beat lengths that are entrainable. You won't connect them with your ear, uh, but you're supposed to hear them as connected. The name Raspberry Icicle is taken from Gene Davis's 1967 abstract expressionist painting of the same name, and it's on the cover of the booklet, so if you stream this, you'll see it. Uh, Davis says he was doing big, big work. He equated bigness with quality, and the expansive time proportions of prisms and their densely packed grids is the aesthetic parallel to Davis's irregularly colored bars that totally fill the canvas. The upper instruments in this work are moving very rapidly here and present some interesting curves to their pitch movement. There are all sorts of interlocking rhythms that make this beguiling. Fantastic overtones are heard throughout the piece too, and I'd spend some time focusing on that if I were you. Fantastic sudden slowing of tempo at the end as the piece reaches its end and we're done with the prisms for Gene Davis. Tracks 10 to 12, we get a little interlude. Three elements for string quartet. So we heard the gamelan, now we're hearing the string quartet. This piece is from 2016. It's one of Baumbusch's earliest endeavors in composing with polytempo structures. To achieve this performance, the performers use individual click tracks in the first and third movements in order to execute the polytempo relationships in the music. Now, I have to say, I'm fascinated by this sort of thing. Rhythm is hard It's because it, you can get a pulse going, but if you're doing things like this where people are playing all you know, these odd mathematical mm. kind of um, you know, deviances from each other, it's really hard to do. And I guess you need a click track for, to help. In the middle movement, though, the ensemble is free from clock time and can interpret the rhythms communally. Movement one is called Helium, and it uses four shifting click tracks to conjure the erratic densities of bouncing gas molecules by oscillating between states of tempo divergence, different simultaneously moving tempi, and convergence, which is stable or unison tempi. It's actually rather appealing in its timbre. The four instruments timbrely sort of meld together despite the unmatching rhythms. We do get the bouncing quality the notes describe, and this is short at less than two minutes. Movement two, which is track 11, Lithium, is chorale-like. Now remember, there's no click track on this, a chorale is one of those chord progressions that you might hear in a Protestant church or in a Bach work. This uses various extended timbral effects with chunks arranged in a way that is inspired by indeterminacy techniques developed by John Cage. It has a long sustained chord at the opening and some interesting timbres heard from the ensemble that seem to change with each chord. Despite the staticness of the movement, each drawing of the bow manages to be some kind of treat for the ear. There's an especially ear-catching swooping harmonic chord that's heard at intervals, and some really intriguing quiet bowing at the end. The third movement, track 12, Mercury, begins helter-skelter 
With the first violinist racing along at 150 beats per minute, the fastest of a 10 to 9 to 8 to 7 tempo relationship with the other three players. <laughs> wow. Uh, creating a dense and unparsable texture. Yeah, that's the right word for it. Anyway, within less than a minute, these four tempi gradually converge on a single unison tempo that slows down and speeds up like a paper plane swooping on an air current, occasionally jumping instantly to a new tempo. The movement continues to oscillate between states of divergence and convergence before ending in a quiet cacophony. It has a bubbling, boiling water-type opening. By the 36-second mark, the lines are merged, and we've got something more American minimalist, like a Steve Reich pattern, but the tempo keeps wavering in an interesting way. The last work is called Hydrogen to Oxygen from 2015. It's in three movements, and Hydrogen to Oxygen means H2O, or water. This is the earliest work on the album. It uses a compositional technique called polytempo, pioneered by composer Conlon Nancaro, who's, if you like complex rhythmic patterns, I recommend that composer, Conlon Nancaro, and further developed by Baumbusch. This work explores the unique tuning landscape that is created by combining Baumbusch's light bulb instruments. Remember, they are the, uh, the first generation instruments of the gamelan that he created. They're non-traditional, and he combines those with the string quartet. The work uses performance practices native to Bali and advanced instrumental techniques that are derived from the virtuosic tradition cultivated by the artistry of Balinese musicians. Here, Baumbusch went to Bali with his instruments to work with Nataswara. Uh, this is the first instance of Balinese musicians performing on American gamelan instruments within Indonesia. The work, inspired in part by Michael Tenzer's 2006 work, Underleaf, takes into consideration the irreconcilability of the two sound worlds, meaning the harmonic overtone series naturally produced by the string instruments first, and the inharmonic series of partials of the steel and setter bars contained by the light bulb instruments. So the juxtaposition of those two. As in three elements, the piece we just heard, the ensemble uses click tracks in the first and third movements, but not in the second. Also, the first movements of both pieces restrict the string quartet to open strings and natural harmonics. So, the first movement, track 13, hydrogen, and parentheses, gas. The first movement doesn't attempt to unify the two sound worlds at all. So, the string quartet and the gamelan are both separate worlds playing at the same time. It reminds me a little bit of Charles Ives. He used to do things mm. like that as well. The hovering and luminous open strings and the natural harmonics of the string quartet and the fluorescent hum of the light bulb instrument's acoustic beating and inharmonic partials are simply allowed to hang together in space, sometimes overlapping with jarring colors. The light bulb instruments play at glacial speed. I should mention I'm reading from the booklet here. And the symmetrical sequence of eight notes that is to be the central melodic strand of the entire work. If you want to know what it is, it's G-F-C-F-G-B-E-B, -E -B, hmm. if, if, if you're technical enough to be able to follow that. Ostinati slowly takes shape and accelerate until finally arriving at the resolution point of this polyrhythm, coordinated to finish at 6 minutes and 10 seconds, at which point the full ensemble enters and splits into four different quartets of instruments. So the movement begins with a lovely chime from the gamelan with harmonic sounds from the string quartet. The gamelan is marking a wide swath of time at the beginning. Once ear is drawn to the timbral effects the strings are causing. They're very subtle. At 2.45, we finally start hearing the wood light bulb instruments, 
with their polytempos. There are also metallic gongs heard. I always find this sort of thing compelling. It does remind me a bit of Nankaro's uh, player piano studies in rhythm, only this has more of an Indonesian timbre. At 4.54, the overall tempo really speeds up and continues to do so into the sixth minute. At around 6.15, the string quartet comes into the forefront, each instrument playing a repeating pattern. By the seventh minute, we're hearing the gamelan and string quartet at an equal dynamic. From this point, there are all sorts of interesting changes of overall texture. A pulse begins in the gamelan at around 8.15. At 10 minutes, the overall sound has a kind of chaotic quality that reminded me of a circus fairground. There's a sudden change to a quicker tempo at 11.13. I like the approach to the end where the gamelan speeds up and the cello plays a slow ostinato pattern. When the strings drop out, we're left with a ringing gamelan instrument that sounds like an alarm clock. And that's how the track ends. The track, does, however, goes directly into the next one, which is called Hydrogen, parentheses, Ice. This is the second movement. The notes tell us this begins to bring the two timbral worlds together, percussion and strings slowly overlapping, and then emerging into restless unison lines like those in the Balinese genre Kebyar, if anyone's familiar with um, that genre in gamelan music. At the beginning of the track, we only hear the string quartet playing slow ostinato patterns and a swooping glissando. It disappears by the 42nd mark and the gamelan is heard. In the third minute, blocky chord sounds are heard from both ensembles. There are a lot of combinational timbral changes in the movement, really too many for me to indicate here, but it really keeps the ear engaged. By 9.36, there's a pause in the constantly shifting timbral and rhythmic variety, and we hear a blocky rhythm with chords and the gamelan instruments. The movement ends with sustained, quiet tones. And the final movement, oxygen, parentheses, aqua. And this presents the uh, GFCFGBEB pitch sequence in a tempo at which we can appreciate its shape. Uh, the gamelan pattern at the beginning moves somewhere between a mid and fast tempo with the strings doing crescendos on single tones and sometimes peaking out of that gamelan pattern. Uh, this movement is relatively short at just over five minutes. The strings start asserting themselves with an ostinato pattern. There are some pretty compelling sounds from the gamelan in this movement with the woody instruments getting some of the spotlight. Uh, the movement moves along at a quick tempo and is pleasing to the ear. I rather like the way the gamelan gradually fell out of the sound and the string quartet ends the movement and work with the last statements of its brief ostinato pattern. In conclusion, I'm afraid I'm rather unfamiliar with actual gamelan playing, despite having a basic idea of how it works, intellectually speaking, not practically. So I can't really dig into the elements of these works and talk about them, you know, that technically. Nevertheless, I found this entire album uplifting, and I think you will too, even without knowing much about the gamelan. I think in a, an actual gamelan performance in Bali would do the same. On the surface, this album can be enjoyed as a percussion album, but there's a lot to dig out of it if you want to do the work, and I was tempted to, and may well look into this more in the future. The recording is very good, with a little dryness to it that only makes the individual instruments, and therefore rhythms, stand out. The recording was, in fact, made with microphones that Baumbush himself made. <laughs> he does everything. He makes the instruments, builds the microphones, writes the music. Boy. An extraordinary composer, an extraordinary world of music awaits those who want to explore this. You know, you got the notes, and so I decided I was going to read them all before I took a <laughs> listen. I did, though. <laughs> I got kind of buried in all the 
yeah, mathematical equations and explanations. Right. And I really wondered what it was going to sound like because I was intrigued by some of these ideas like inharmonic partials and polytempos. And when you actually get exposed to them, there's something that's kind of organic and natural about them. Because if you think of it, instrumental sounds that we're used to today are finely tuned to these kind of harmonic resonances that we associate right. with music. But if you go out in nature and hit, you know, a, a tree or a, you just hit a piece of metal, you're going to get some odd overtones and things that, you know, have a more organic feel. Or, or when you hear things like uh, rain or water dripping yeah. all around you, there's going to be various tempos going on all at once right. and they slow yeah. down and speed up. And so when I heard these kind of elements come through, especially in the, uh, like the polytempo, the Jack Quartet, uh, three elements, the first one, helium, that movement, I kind of recognized that polytempo. So oh, there's something very natural about that. Or when you hear the, the gamelan uh, harmonics, it's really, uh, interesting. But there's a lot of things you're not used to here you know, as a, Western listener, if you're not trained in this. But what I found is there's not much to focus on here in terms of Western harmony, the things that I normally would key in on. And there are melodic aspects, but they're a little bit different as well. So I found my mind drawn into the rhythmic and tempo aspects. And so you can kind of focus on that. And there's a sort of hypnotic element to the rhythms as well. Hmm. And yeah, it kind of drew me into a different world of music. A strange one for me, but one that wasn't hard to listen to at all. So yeah, I was uh, entertained and uh, my interest was held throughout all these uh, interesting rhythmic explorations in here. Hypnosis is a good uh, theme for uh, tonight's episode. A lot yeah. of this uh, music is hypnotic. All right, over on the jazz side this week, well, the last few weeks we've explored a lot of uh, larger ensembles. We had octet, nanet, and several big band and large ensemble recordings. So this week we're going to scale down, go with a couple quartets and something even a little bit more intimate in the middle of the program. But we're going to start out with a quartet, a vibes quartet by the vibraphonist Jalen Baker. It's on Cellar Live label called Be Still. Came out July 7th. Now, Baker was born in Washington, D.C. He was raised in Houston, Texas. Vibraphonist, percussionist, educator, and also composer. He studied both classical and jazz music early on. Decided to focus on jazz. And in 2017, he got a B.A. in jazz studies from Columbia College, Chicago. And then he was accepted as a graduate assistant in the jazz performance program at Florida State University. And in 2019, he got his master's in jazz studies and was chosen as a Ravinia Jazz Fellow in 2018. He's been an active performer with the Leon Anderson Quartet, the Ulysses Owens Trio and Quartet, as well as leading his own band, the Muski Tano. In his previous recording as a leader in 2021, this is me, this is us. Here, what he says of this album, I'll quote the notes here, and Be Still is an album about reflection and new beginnings. So many things in my life have changed over the last few years, and I wanted this album to feature music that represented my growth as a human, as well as some songs that inspired me at the beginning of my musical journey. 
each chapter of someone's life can be traced back to a few key moments, and I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to document this chapter with music that's very close to my heart and with people that truly inspire me. So there's the concept for the recording. Baker on vibraphone here, Paul Cornish on piano, Gabe Godoy on bass, and Gavin Mulchen on drums. So, when, you know, you have uh, vibes and piano can occupy the same tonal space oftentimes. So it's always interesting when I see that. I want to see how they maneuver around. And there's some interesting things with that here. Executive producer, as usual, on Cellar Live is Corey Weeds. And produced overall by Jeremy Pelt. Oh, nice. Yeah. Familiar name. I like those um, uh, label kind of owners or, you know, presidents that... Uh produce all of the recordings you know yeah, yeah. man for at ecm and you know yeah. too. the same thing yeah well, mark free at positone all right basically a two-man production mm. and uh, i think you get some really good quality well you certainly get consistency absolutely all right we're going to start out uh first track a baker original twas and baker starts it out with a repeated syncopated riff that sets up the rhythmic drive of the tune Cornish joins him with interestingly offset descending piano chords, bass, and a heavy even drum beat join in, and they're all on that rhythmic pattern together for a bit before Baker gets some flourishes and ringing notes and then sails into the melody. Cornish keeps the rhythmic syncopated chords going underneath, locked in with Godoy's bass and in the lower register, making some distance from that vibe range, you know, so that they're not overlapping. Mulchen has hard snare hits on two and four with skittering subdivisions. It's a 24 measure minor modally melody with a few harmonic twists and gaps for drum fills. They go around that twice and Baker lifts out of the final phrase into an improvised solo. He starts with interval figures and gets into little figures moved around in different registers of the vibraphone, and then some impressive double-time work with intensity over Mulchan's thundering drum fills. Uh, they bring that back down soft for Cornish to take a piano solo, and he's a vocalizer, as <laughs> you'll hear uh, behind <laughs> the lines on this album. <laughs> uh, he works little phrases interestingly through the harmonies before turning it up into faster and percussive figures. They take it through the melody once more, and then bass and piano keep working through the chords for Mulchin to work up a frenzy on the drums, and then Baker returns with long ringing vibes for the ending. It's an energetic start to the recording. We'll continue on with track two, another Baker original, Be Still, that's your title track there. This gets started with an intro of measure-long descending bass figures moving around the chord pattern that you'll get used to. Uh, they go around again with light cymbals and interesting piano ripples from Cornish. Baker joins in with the previous riff idea for a couple rounds into the melody that has a more relaxed spaced flow synced with Cornish's chords and Godoy's syncopated bass figures. Seems to be a 32 measure melody into another section of the riff idea and a transition into tense improvised piano from Cornish. Godoy's throbbing one note bass and Mulchan ripping fills. Uh, the next section has ringing vibe figures just over the throbbing bass and then more snappy syncopated bass and piano. Settles down for Cornish and Baker to get started on an exchange of solo sections. Cornish is interestingly meandering and Baker more rhythmic with his melodic ideas. Mulchan really lays down the drums underneath. They bring it back down softer for another run through the melody with repeated end phrases and a wash of pulsing vibes to end it. Track 3 is also a Baker original, Lexi's Lullaby. It's a softer tune, as you would guess from the title. 
Baker gets it going with a solo vibes intro of alternating notes and moving lower interval. Uh, after letting it ring out, he picks up into the gentle melody. The bass has long held notes, chords, and a little trickly piano fills from Cornish. Mulchin's on light brushes here. It's around 22 measures before it works back into the intro vibes riff with the syncopated bass line underneath. There's a new melody section into ringing vibes figures, and Mulchan's back to sticks and big fills on the drums, working Baker into an improvised solo of tight, snappy, and speedy melodic vibes figures. More ringing vibes figures, and then soft rhythmic piano and vibes under which Godoy takes the ringing idea of bass to a final wash of vibes ripples. Yeah, now this is the track that I had mentioned to you that I thought there was a quote from the Bee Gees song, More Than a Woman, in it. Did you think so? You know, I didn't pick it up when I was listening to it, yeah. no. Okay. Like you and me, I can see myself. Let history repeat itself. That part. <laughs> Only it's much slower than that, okay? okay? Yeah, mm. that was my... That was my uh, Maurice Gibb uh, imitation. That was, was he, is he the one that sang? I don't remember who was who. They're all pretty high. <laughs> They're all pretty high? Okay. <laughs> anyway, I would like to know that if we get in touch with the okay. musician, is, is that a um, more than a woman quote in Lexi's <laughs> lullaby? We'll find out. Anyway, uh, <laughs> track four. Uh, this is one of the tunes he was uh, referring to for musical inspirations by the great vibraphonist Bobby Hutcherson. Herzog, this is from... The 1968 uh, Total Eclipse recording with Chick Corea. Uh, it's a cool moto tune. It fades in over repeated piano fourths from Cornish and then some snappy bass and drum fills under vibes before Baker gets going on the tune. Baker really lets the mouths fly on this one and the trio syncs up nicely with accents under him. Nice snappy rhythmic patterns in his lines. Cornish gets a solo next. It's an intense one with lots of complex uh, interworking of rhythmic figure ideas. And Baker gets to work through the melody again with some nice rippling tones at the end. Track five, uh, Baker original, There's Beauty in Fear. It's a 6 8 tune with a busily interesting piano intro for four measures. Bass and drums join in for another round, and Baker comes in with a minor modal melody. Notice a polyrhythmic effect with drums and the vibe melody in a 6-8 feel, and the bass below in a 4-beat per measure repeated pulse. Uh, the structure is unique too. There's an 8-measure melody section, then four measures of skittering improvised piano, the first melody section again, and then a new contrasting section that goes on for about 10 measures to a sudden rising vibe figure, and then just the pulsing bass in four is left alone until new rhythmic vibe figures return on top in a section transitioning to Baker's solo. Mulchen's dancing cymbals return, marking out the subdivisions. It's an exciting vibe solo with speedy rhythmic figures and runs covering the range of the instrument. He pulls back for a section of simpler rhythmic ideas before some real speed for an exciting solo. Cornish starts his solo out with very simple figures and works around rhythmic ideas and modulating repeated figures into some percussive ringing chords. And Mulchen has super tight rolls going on behind. Then there's a new section of cool syncopated vibes melody it works into repeated rhythmic figures that they work to the end as it fades out. Another one of the musically inspiring songs, a Joe Henderson tune, Jin Rikisha. This is from 1963's Page One. That's got uh, McCoy Tyner and Kenny Durham on it. Uh, it's a cool tune. The big kind of hanging chords at the beginning and uh, modal moods. Uh, they keep the same piano idea as the original, 
with Baker taking the original horn melody on the vibes. Uh, there are a lot of drum breaks for the notes to hang, but when the drums get going, Mulch is giving this tune a real heavy backbeat, which is kind of interesting. Godoy gets the first solo here with a great dark and meaty tone and fluid melodic lines, rhythmic and with a touch of bluesy ideas, and Baker has snappy phrases in his solo, locking in with that backbeat. The tone of the vibe sounds great, ringing out clearly, and he mixes in some cool triplet lines towards the end of the solo to take it through the melody and to a little vamp to end it. Track 7, back to Baker's original tune, The Light. Ringing vibe chords over busy bass figures and tight hi-hat make an intro into a rising major sounding vibes melody over snare drum figures. As the melody goes on, it twists to minor and then gets synced with the bass for some rising interval lines. And after a little break, it gets more rhythmic, pressing forward with repeated riffs over building heavy drums into some skittering vibe runs and then ringing vibes chords. I don't hear any piano on this uh, track, so I think Cornish is sitting out. Godoy gets to solo first on bass again. He's really agile and works speedy phrases while Baker has muted rhythmic backing chords. And Baker follows with some fast riffs into an explorative solo. He locks in speedy rhythmic licks into the tight groove with those machine gun kind of hits in all registers. Impressive speed and melodic ideas. The solo ends with a cloud of ringing vibes. And Baker then gets things restarted with a slower repeating descending riff that gets a matching bass ostinato, and Mulchan gets to unload spring-loaded drums soloing for a while over that vamp, and a final section of the melody with the vibes and bass intervals we heard before closes it out. Our one standard and the final track on the album, Johnny Green's Body and Soul. Cornish returns on piano here. Bass note and ringing piano and vibe chord hangs at the beginning to start it, creating a little suspense, and then right into the melody, nice and slow, with Baker treating it gently and letting the notes ring out. Godoy has thick bass tones underneath, and Mulchan is soft with delicate hi-hat and occasional cymbals. Baker decorates with little trills, and Cornish has tasty fills on the way. It's a long and lovely melody. Godoy gets to solo first again, making the bass tone really sing out melodically, and he has some nice slides in his bass lines. Baker follows, improvising around the melody with dreamy decorations and bluesy touches. It works into a cadenza for the vibes with up and down runs into the final phrase for a lush ending. That's it. I thought it's an entertaining recording, mostly straight type beats in Baker's original compositions that match his busy and rhythmic style. And Mulchen seems like the perfect drummer for this. He's pressurized and hard hitting. We get versions of Hutcherson's and Henderson's original compositions and one ballad standard to balance things out. Baker's solos are exciting with speedy mallet work and good melodic ideas. Sometimes vibes and piano can get in each other's way on recordings, but here Cornish makes it work with his solos that are quite unique and kind of uh, alternate style to Baker's vibe sound. Godoy gets a lot of bass solo time with great tone and melodic ideas too. And Mulchen adds quite a punch to the rhythmic tunes. Yeah, excellent stuff. Yeah, I really love the uh, clarity of the vibraphone sound on this album. Uh, he contrasts a lot with the rest of the ensemble, uh, who tend to be in the low end, so he kind of really stands out with his like brighter really sound. Really rings out, yeah. Yeah. He's also got some serious virtuosity. Did you mention this? Like, yeah. He's got some amazingly fast runs. I like the bass on this album, too. I liked his solos, which were yeah. generally melodic and well-shaped and well-thought-out. 
Yeah, great tone. The recording is excellent, full, and lots of satisfying bass end. And it's a mostly mid-tempo recording, but has a laid-back overall feel to it, though the ear is kept engaged by the twists and turns in the harmony. The drums were hard-hitting and made an impact. I felt they could have had more presence in the overall balance, maybe because he's so hard-hitting, they kind of moved him <laughs> back. I don't know. The hard hits are heard, but they're not really felt, you know what I mean? But you do feel them, because they're, so, they're yeah. so strong. He's a hard hitter, yeah. Yeah. I just love the vibes, and I enjoyed this album. How could I not? It's great. Give it yeah. a listen. Exciting vibe playing. You know, vibes can cover a full spectrum. Uh, you know, sometimes you get kind of uh, atmospheric, and he does have a good atmosphere with the kind of ringing washes of notes, but uh, when he gets uh, soloing on a lot of these uh, even beat kind of subdivided things, the speed is very impressive. Excellent technique. Yeah, but musical and uh, interesting originals too. Kept me kind of rewinding and thinking, okay, what did I just hear? What's that structure? Uh, interesting compositions. All right, we're going to pare things down to basically a duo with... Uh, a little bit of vocal guest work for the next recording, which is by bassist Mark Lewandowski and pianist Liam Noble. This is on Ubuntu, and it's a bouquet for Lady Day, Billie Holiday. Mm. And this came out on July 14th. So Lewandowski's New York City-based bassist. He's originally from Nottingham, England, and he studied at the Guildhall School and also Juilliard. And he's played with a variety of musicians, a uh, big list of names, Wynton Marsalis, Joe Chambers, John Zorn, John Sermon, Steve Wilson, David Liebman, Jeremy Pelt, on and on. Liam Noble is born in London, 1968. He studied also at uh, Guildhall School of Music at Postgraduate and University of Oxford before that. And after his studies, he played with saxophonist Stan Saltzman in duo and quartet performances. He teaches at the Royal Academy of Music and also Birmingham Conservatory and the University of Kent. Now, we've heard Lewandowski a few times on the program. Uh, we heard his release Under One Sky. That was way back in episode 47, Baroque and Bass. We also heard him with uh, Joe Chambers on Dance Cobina. That was on Blue Note. That was back in episode 103, Beats of Different Drummers. But here, uh, it's really worth uh, reading the notes, which you can find on Bandcamp. I won't read all of them, but to see what he's aiming at with this recording. So just for the concept, uh, I'll quote here. He says, I have carefully selected repertoire from what is a humongous catalog to highlight some of the key musical relationships in Holiday's tragically short life. Her pianists, Teddy Wilson and Mal Waldron, songwriting partnerships such as the one with misunderstood pianist Herbie Nichols, and who can forget her dearest and closest friend, Lester Young. We have also featured compositions of Billy's to show the most personal side of her music. Although she famously commented that she wasn't able to sing even a standard song if she didn't feel the lyrics. Billy's Blues and Left Alone purposely feature Heidi, the singer we're here on these wonderful holiday originals. Mark describes the challenging nature of the project. I find playing duo with a pianist among the most challenging of lineups, so I've aimed to explore ways of dealing with the level of space and intimacy that goes with this particular instrumentation. It's forced me to improvise in a different way, trying to 
take the melodicism of her style and that of her contemporaries and find my own way as a modern improvising musician to convey the way her music makes me feel, attempting to avoid pastiche and nostalgia. I hate the words tribute band, and I have no intention of making this project fall within that category. I'd see it more as personal reflection and commentary that hopefully has that magical balance of being informed by the rich tradition of the source material, yet personal and current in its aesthetic. Uh, you know, it's not a tribute to Billie Holiday as much as sort of being inspired and bringing something new to that music. Mark Lewandowski's on acoustic double bass, Liam Noble on piano, and Heidi Vogel guests on vocals for two tracks. Interestingly, here, there's also some ambient sound in the tracks at the end that fades in. If you listen to headphones, you hear this. It's like city noises and traffic sounds that you hear in some tracks here. Anyway, we're going to start with a little opener called Day Breaks. This is actually just an original kind of opening to get things started. And there's a bit of outdoor ambient sound into bowed bass and pretty piano ripples. And the bowing goes down low and then ascends to a piano chime and final soft notes, and then it hangs and fades all at less than a minute, which goes into track two, More Than You Know, Vincent Yeoman's Billy Rose and Edward Elliskew composition from the 1929 Broadway musical Great Day. This was recorded by Teddy Wilson and his orchestra vocals by Billy Holiday in 1939. This starts with a slightly rubato tentative dance between the two musicians with descending lines into the B section of the melody gaining momentum. It's on the lyric if you know the song Loving You the Way I Do. This is sort of emphasized in the performance here. Soon they are into a slow swing feel for the melody. Uh, Lewandowski's bass tone rings big and sure underneath and Noble has light and relaxed phrasing. They have some playful exchange of improvisations for a time uh, through the melody with bouncy lines underneath them from Lewandowski and then a more melodic round of bass improvisation. Noble picks it up from the B section with gentle figures into the final A part of the melody and nicely synced rising lines and wait for the repeated bass note to fade until the final piano chime uh, before it's over. Track three, This Year's Kisses, an Irving Berlin song, for the musical On the Avenue, 1937, Billy Holiday also recorded it in 1937, accompanied by Teddy Wilson and his orchestra. Here, rippling piano and bowed bass give this one a very dreamy start. Noble's heavy descending chords and then rising figures create anticipation to a cadence and pause. And then things are off to a medium-fast swing over chugging walking bass. Noble has a nice bounce in his phrasing with lots of speedy triplets, and Lewandowski switches up the walking bass with snappy little repeated interval figures. Noble has some improvisations with little tense harmonies in his moving chords, and Lewandowski's solo has some speedy triplets too. Ringing melodic lines, they take another playful run through the melody, and Noble makes an interesting ending with slowing down staccato notes. Track 4, P.S. I Love You by Gordon Jenkins and Johnny Mercer, 1934. Billie Holiday recorded it in 1954 uh, with her orchestra that had some big names, Harry Edison on trumpet, Willie Smith on sax, Barney Kessel on guitar. Now, if you know the original, uh, it starts with a rising guitar kind of chord figure. And here, Noble starts it solo on piano with that idea done on piano. Then Lewandowski picks up that figure as Noble moves on to some chords 
and other fills to bring the intro to the melody where Lewandowski takes over. It's a warm and rich bass melody with gently kind of swaying feel to it, and Noble keeps the accompaniment minimal and tasty. Lewandowski continues on into a solo with gentle but speedy lines and repeated note ideas. He takes a little breather for one B section of the melody with some light figures from Noble. Then he comes back for more on the last A section into another round of soloing. They hit the last strain of the melody together with a nicely synced rising line and a final little bass cadenza to an unwinding ending that has some more ambient sound mixed in that connects it to the next track, track five, which is What a Little Moonlight Can Do, tuned by Harry Woods. This was written in 1934. The song was sung in the film Roadhouse by Violet Lorraine. It had an extra verse, I guess, looking up the history of the song. It's not heard in the version later recorded by Billie Holiday in 1935. Here, ringing bass harmonics and rubato bendy bass improvisations with sparse piano chimes get it started. It remains kind of impressionistic with trickling piano notes and dreamy bass lines and overtones forming more of the melody and harmonic progression. Lewandowski switches to bowing at the end that melts into more ambient sound. And I think I hear a siren uh, in there in the background. (laughs) It's uh, delicate and pretty. Trexix, Billy's Blues, this is one of Billy Holiday's original compositions, composed just before the recording session where it was recorded in 1936. They take this at a pretty fast tempo and give it a boogie-woogie treatment, but then they have fun dismantling (laughs) rhythms and harmonies into some fun chaos of improvisation. And listen to how Lewandowski's bass patterns change up with each switch-up of the rhythmic ideas that Noble has until the boogie returns and you'll see how in sync they are with each other's playing. It winds down uh, before three minutes and then Noble takes things on a solo bluesy jaunt with interesting harmonies to the end. Track seven, Lady Sings the Blues, written by Herbie Nichols and Billie Holiday. That's the title song to her 1956 album. The original had a stirring kind of trumpet opening, but here Noble gets a rhythmic vamp going over bowed bass from Lewandowski, and we get some early vocalizations from Heidi Vogel, who's going to sing this one for us. She's got a very smoky huskiness, kind of reminiscent of Cassandra Wilson's voice, a really nice bass work from Lewandowski underneath, mixing up rhythmic figures and fills of rising lines, and Noble has a bluesy and rhythmically unpredictable short solo. Vogel gets more expressive on the final verse, but then pulls it back softer to a nicely held out ending note. Track 8 is Some Other Spring. This was recorded by Billie Holiday and her orchestra in 1939. It's written by Arthur Herzog Jr. and Irene Kitchings. Sudden high rippling piano and fast high bass bowing create a unique atmosphere that fades to trickles over some unexpected lower bowed bass notes. Noble gets the slow ballad melody started with deep ringing bass from Lewandowski. It's soft and sparse, showing off Noble's delicate touch and articulation. His improvisations keep the same character with lots of space, but some more connected lines of smooth runs form together. Lewandowski has a soft and understated solo as well before they have a final run through the melody to a gentle ending. There's more ambient sound and it continues to the next track. Number nine, The Still of the Night, which is 
just a very short, another interlude piece here, bowed bass from Lewandowski and some piano trills from Noble that unwinds in less than a minute to a low bowed note to track 10, Who Wants Love by Franz Waxman and Gus Kahn, uh, recorded by Billy Holiday in an orchestra in 1937. Synced right hand piano lines and unison bass with tempting little pauses. Uh, they split off into some exchange lines before merging together. Again, Noble gets round to taking a run through the melody and Lewandowski walking below, but the bass gets a melodic section as well. A sudden changing to rising percussive piano figures builds up tension with Lewandowski joining in. Things get rhythmic and a bit raucous but they pull out for more swinging piano improvisations with skittering lines and two-hand figures into percussive chords. Uh, things get softer for a final taste of the melody and a last synced up lines together. It's a nice transformation. And we're going to end up with track 11, Left Alone by Billie Holiday and Mal Waldron. It's one of uh, seven songs that she uh, wrote but never recorded. And Mal Waldron began working as a pianist for Holiday in 1953, and Holiday had intended to record the song a number of times, but she always forgot the music <laughs> at the recording session. However, Waldron recorded it himself in 1959 on his album Left Alone. Rubato ringing chords here over low bowed bass make an intro to bring back Heidi Vogel on vocals. This one is very haunting with a minor melody. Still rubato over sparse piano from Noble with very mournful lyrics. Where's the love that's made to fill my heart? Where's the one from whom I'll never part? First they hurt me, then desert me. I'm left alone all alone. Oh, <laughs> that's pretty sad. Yeah. Lewandowski joins back with bowed bass for an interlude before the repeat of the A section, then switching back up to plucking for a more forward push on the repeat. This song has an interesting short four-measure bridge where it switches briefly to major, and Vogel's voice gets on like a wispier high register that really contrasts nicely with that harmonic change before returning to the minor and sad A section in the final part being left alone again. They stretch the ending with soft repeats of the vocal phrase, and it ends with ambient city sounds, and this time you can hear sirens and car horns if you hmm. uh, listen closely. So it's a mostly subtle but sometimes exuberant reimagination of these old songs recorded by and or written by Billie Holiday. Uh, there's a high level of synergy and communication between Lewandowski and Noble and lots of musical nuance that you want to listen very closely to in order to fully appreciate it. Vogel's smoky vocals are atmospheric and hit the emotions of the lyrics in just the right way making a contrast and a logical balance to the instrumental treatment of the rest of the songs. It's a well-thought-out program with a lot of sensitive interpretation. You've really got me into these uh, bass and piano duos. It just re really works <laughs> well. Um, really, bass duos with anyone work pretty well. I always also like the ones with um, Tom Svanisbeck. Yeah, yeah, and, Tom Svanisbeck, uh, yeah. Anyway, this is light and swings lightly and appealingly uh, for the most part. We hit some rhythmically kind of formless material in track five, but it was fun picking the familiar melody out of the piano line there. What a little moonlight can do. They didn't, you know, they didn't really have like a right. get a rhythm going in that. It was really cool. Track six merges the traditional with the avant-garde in the beginning, and I kind of thought that was interesting. And the melodies are great throughout. And uh, so, yeah, I like this. Yeah. I gotta say, I like these uh, piano and bass duos. Really cool. It's very intimate, and, you know, it allows the 
or requires the bass to take on a bit more of a melodic role. Right. It's really interesting because the piano can, you know, plays the bass as well. So what does the bass do? It's kind of interesting how they work that out to yeah. me, you know, it's like the bass gets a more melodic role in this and yeah, it's got a warm, warmer sound the piano has. So it kind of adds that as well. It was nice to hear a whole program of older music from the 30s Yeah, done with uh, today's modern uh Got to keep those tunes alive, man. They're pretty yeah, great. Absolutely. We're going to finish things up with one more quartet recording. And uh, yeah, this one's kind of interesting and <laughs> unique in its own way, too. And that's the guitarist Joel Harrison. His recording on High Note Records' Anthem of Unity. This came out July 21st. So Harrison's a guitarist with a really wide range of influences and stylistic output. Uh, he's born in 1957, Washington, D.C. Around age nine, he started taking guitar lessons, initially focusing on classical music, but then he switched to electric guitar uh, when he was a teenager, discovering the Beatles, Hendrix, Clapton, <laughs> Danny Gatton, and others. After high school, when he was playing in various rock bands, uh, he enrolled to study at New York's Bard College, and then he began getting into jazz and studying composition with Joan Tower. And he also spent time at Carl Berger's Creative music studio in Woodstock. Now, I think maybe this is where I first heard him, uh, 2003, Free Country. Uh, he did a lot of like Americana-influenced stuff, working with Nora Jones and playing material by like George Jones, Woody Guthrie, Merle Haggard. He's worked with saxophonist David Beanie, and, and he's also done an interesting kind of like big band album in 2013, and also collaborations with the Indian Sarad player uh, Anupam <laughs> Shobhakar in 2014 uh, leave the door open so there's a lot of uh, material there as influenced and output and you're going to hear a lot of that on this uh, recording as well so here we're going to get Harrison on guitar Gary Versace on organ who we just heard a few weeks ago on piano mm. but here's going to be mostly on organ a little bit of piano on one track Greg Tardy on tenor sax, Jack DeJanet on drums, which uh, adds an extra weighty presence to this recording. All right, an interesting mix of material, starting with the Harrison original, the Anthem of Unity for track one. Uh, the notes say, inspired by a late mentor guitarist, Mick Goodrick, uh, who also had worked with Jack DeJanet before. This was composed the day before the session. And there's a real looseness to this kind of uh, recording. It kind of flows freely, the playing and tunes here. This is a, a groove that seems like part gospel and part New Orleans for this tune. Uh, Harrison has rhythm guitar and little riffs going over a popping organ bass line from Versace. A happy rising melody is first handled by Tardy's tenor in unison with the organ. And then Harrison takes it with Tardy with a guitar tone that slices through in the upper register. Here and throughout this recording, Dijonet lays down great grooves and fills that you're going to enjoy all the way through. Versace gets the first solo that locks into the funky beat. Tardy follows, getting more harmonically adventurous and scoopy in his phrasing. Speedy double-time lines and high cries are mixed in there, too. Harrison takes the solo baton next with some high notes and into a solo with great ringing tone and happy licks with an interesting variety of articulation on the guitar. To take another run through the melody and the spirit is rising with inspired fills from Harrison behind it. The ending has wispy organ and sax over contrasting choppy muted guitar coming down soft. 
Trek 2 is another Harrison original survival instinct. Dijanet beats this one in powerfully, and Versace gives it a menacing minor reggae-ish kind of bass line, uh, stinging guitar notes into synthy zippy sounds from Harrison mm. that implies something dangerous is going to happen. The slinky post-Bobby melody is handled in unison by Tardy's sax and Harrison. It's a 32 measures uh, with the second half getting more harmonic twists, and then the last section last eight measure section a bit of bluesiness in there too versace gets that menacing bass going again and hardy's up first for a solo that charms some snakes out of the baskets with some uh, cool modal lines at the beginning I that. yeah <laughs> uh, harrison adds more synthy zips and crunchy chords in the background uh, the rhythmic change-ups are interesting getting a bit of chugging swing going for a minute then just a sax solo on this tune with a final run through the melody with a little ending tag section. I must have been a snake in a past life because I love <laughs> modal melodies. <laughs> Maybe that's why. All right. Interesting cover version of Bob Dylan's The Times They Are Changing here. It's a dreamy waltz tempo traced in Dijonet's cymbals with tasty little snare fills. Versace's on piano with ringing chords on the intro. And Harrison takes the melody simply and honestly as Versace has clean organ lines below with still ringing piano going on at the same time. Tardy joins in with Harrison for a round of the melody. And Harrison gets a tasty solo with a richer tone here and some dreamy slide work as the organ swells below. Another sax and guitar shared run of the melody. And check out Dijonet's fills below. It's so tasty what he's doing under there. Mm. Tardy gets some soft and fluid improvised sax lines into a wispy outro. Track four, another Harrison original, Today is Tomorrow's Yesterday. It's a great title. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's going to be my new pickup line, you know? Get it on hey, a t-shirt. Today is did you know today is tomorrow's yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this one's a post-boppy minor modal tune with interesting harmonic directions. The melody is worked by sax and guitar together and seems to be 42 measures long. Versace gets an organ solo first with exciting speedy lines over busy bass too. Uh, thick guitar chords and Dijonet's creative fills mix things up underneath. Tardy follows with a sax solo. He's fluid and fast fingered and things switch to more of a driving swing feel with walking bass and pressing cymbals. Once more through the melodies with the kind of stepping on the brake pedal right near the end to slow it down before it finishes. Another cover tune, uh, this time Sonny Rollins' Doxy. Uh, it's an interesting version here. Dijonet gets it started with a cool beat, kind of mixes a New Orleans feel, but with a good dose of funk to it. Uh, a great popping bass line and organ hits from Versace and tasty muted guitar and licks before the sax and guitar take Rollins' melody. It sounds fun and playful with this funky beat. Harrison solos first, here with a more bluesy and slidey approach, getting some edgy tone on the guitar. Tardy follows with a bluesy and fluttery solo, and Versace's solo is bluesy and sticks in the groove tightly, working into some super speedy double time kind of lines and a big bluesy finish. They go through the melody again and then stick on a funky vamp for Tardy to get some more sax improv with tight interjections from organ and guitar before softly funking out to a finish. Track 6, Migratory Birds, another Harrison original. It's an atmospheric tune with an even 5-4 meter to it. Harrison takes the melody with a clean-toned guitar with moving organ lines and chords below. The harmonies are interesting and moody with lifting feelings when the modes change. 
Harrison gets into speedy and snappy flurries of notes in his improvisations. Then Tardy joins him on unison melody lines on clarinet midway through. Versace gets some high improvisations over swelling guitar chords as things quiet and settle to the end. Track 7, another Harrison original, Parvati. Dijonet gets the spotlight here, starting this one out with an extended drum solo for about a minute and 20 seconds. Harrison gets a groove started with rhythmic chords and then is joined for a modal melody by Tardy and swelling organ and running fills from Versace. Harrison solos first, taking his time building up from muted rising lines. He keeps the phrasing and rhythms interesting in his ideas. Tardy follows with fast-flowing sax lines navigating the shifting modes and some happy melodic licks. Versace's solo's intense and has speedy lines and then chills out with more chordy ideas. Sax and guitar take the melody again and ends up with some sax blowing over jangling chords from Harrison and high organ pulsing. And we're going to end up with track 8, the final Harrison original Mohawk Valley Peace Dance. Dijonet and Versace establish a funky groove to start this out. It's a very unique impression. The pattern is a 4-4-4 four, 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 three beat pattern. That final measure of three really uh, creates a unique feeling there. Yeah. Harrison adds taut rocky licks that get joined by Tardy to make a minor modal melody that seems to have a little kind of mohawky tinge to it. Yeah, it's almost like a rock song in some way, too. It's just so strong, you know. Yeah, definitely. Uh, There's a change in mode with a lift and nice organ swells that change it up. And Harrison pulls out the wah-wah pedal for a reverb-drenched solo of crying licks for this one. Tardy gets a solo with speedy lines, triplet figures, and high register reaches. They take another pow-wow through the melody and groove out with some more sax and crunchy and bluesy guitar until a repeat of the final phrase to wrap it up. Well, that's it. I had a lot of fun listening to this recording. There's a sense of looseness in the tunes, but everything gets held firmly together by Jack DeJeanette's great grooves and steadiness. Harrison's compositions are interesting, mixing a lot of styles and influences, both rock and jazzy. There's a lot of cool modal moods that get explored. The funky treatment of Doxy was really cool, and the dreamy Bob Dylan interpretation was fun, too. Hmm. Harrison's guitar playing is edgy, but... There's a lot of subtleties in articulation and tone. He has a lot of unique creative ideas in his solos as well. Well, Tardy always sounds great on sax with uh, good phrasing and sharing the lead with the guitar makes a nice balance here. Uh, his solos are exciting too. Versace, we always enjoy. Uh, we heard him on piano recently and here he's mostly on organ, contributes a lot to the moods and excitement with big swells of sound and then speedy lines of excitement in his solos too. This is a hard to pin down genre-wise, but I will just call it fun and free music. Yeah, it's an appealing album, sometimes funky, sometimes mysterious. Each player drew my ear during solos. So, you know, I'll know, well, I think Jack DeJanette always stands out for me whenever I see his yeah. name on an album. I do want to hear it. And he's great on this too, as he always is. He's really unique. Yes, he really yeah. brings something really different every time. I think these guys were all in tune and well-matched with each other, though. It's more fun than anything else, I think. And I was especially caught by the emphatic nature of Mohawk Valley Peace Dance. Yeah. It really made an impression. I think it was just so hard-hitting, I think. Clean recording without being slick, and uh, which I like. And all instruments come up sounding great. So, yeah, I enjoyed this one a lot, too. It kind of hits that balance between like intense and then kind of dreamy and wispy. Right. It's got a good feel to it. It's uplifting in nature. So, If you want intensity, you want Jack DeJanette on drums. 
yeah, <laughs> he yeah. could be a really intense drummer. He can be, but you know, there's so much subtlety in the little fills. Right, right, that too. You're listening to a solo, but you, your ear gets drawn to like what he just did with this cool little rhythm underneath it and stuff. So, right, right. yeah, he certainly has not lost any of his touch and taste over the yeah. years. Yeah, so check this one out uh, and check out uh, some of uh, Harrison's other recordings. He's a very versatile and covers all kinds of different music. So there's a lot to uh, enjoy with tasty guitar playing as well. Hey, that's it. We actually, uh, wow, this is... <laughs> clocked in at just under, in. we might be under uh, two hours. This yeah. would be amazing, which is kind of what we want. <laughs> it's kind of good, yeah. Yeah, good for us to yeah. <laughs> be a little more compact, right? Trip to uh, Bali and then... Um, we were all over the place. We, yeah, Italy, yeah. Yeah. Constantinople. I, I think Istanbul really would be the one. As always, we want to give our... Thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And don't forget to check out the same difference to Jazz Fans One Jazz Standard Podcast. There'll be a link in the description below. And also as well, their promo will come up at the end of this episode. And remember, we'll be getting together. Those guys will be guests on our show coming up towards the end of the month. And uh, it should be a good time. Yeah, or the or the beginning of next month. It depends when we put it up. I'm yeah, not really sure when, we when that's it. happening. But it's coming soon. And next week, what do you got for next week, Mike? What do I have for next week? Oh, we got it's it's pretty much a a mixed bag. Well, not a mixed bag quality wise. I'm sure it's all going to be awesome. But we have a new Renitsky. Oh, that's right. Out. This the is the uh, yeah. yeah part of um Marek Stilek's um series of for Naxos. So we got the next one of those. Right. Which it seems to be a lot of overtures and sorts of things like that. We've got some wind quintets from Rossini, which I've never, no. not wind quintets, sorry, wind quartets from Rossini. I've never heard these works before. I didn't even know they existed because wow. I think of Rossini as an opera composer. Right. So I'm very curious about this. I want to hear what that's like. Uh, I imagine they'll be light, but you know, they might fool us. We'll see. And then contemporary composer Sebastian Fagerlund, who we, um, covered before he has a there's a new album of more of his music and uh, we liked the first one so i thought i'd kind of mm. check out some further uh compositions of his so we'll be hearing oh. that this week and i happen to have the uh beast sacd of that so i'm always happy <laughs> to be listening right. in surround sound great on the jazz side i've got a new debut recording from a 22 year old pianist in the uk noah stoneman piano trio we'll check that out then we've got uh, more music of Greg Hill. All right. I remember, you know, the last time we talked about his music. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, this time we've got the Technocats, which is going to be uh, guitar and bass trombone lead instruments on it. And uh, I had to listen to it. It's really good. So I'm looking forward to digging deep right, into to, that. I'll probably listen to that first. A lot of times when I listen to the jazz, I kind of save the best for last. Because like if I'm okay. kind of like at the beginning of the week, I'm like, oh, man, I'm, I might have to like be in a hurry to listen to this that I right. you know I don't want it to be something I like you know? so I'll do the the other right. ones first and then yeah. we're going to check out uh, the new recording just came out uh, this week by Greg Lewis uh, organist with his uh, organ monk series uh, mm. so Thelonious Monk tunes on the Hammond organ oh that'd be cool that'll be uh, the program for next week if you want to check out those recordings you can get them all in one place on our Deezer playlist that'll go up a couple hours after this episode's released 
You'll find it on Deezer and also a link to it from our Facebook page if you want to come over and check us out there. So uh, we'll see you again next week for episode 127. So until then, keep listening and we'll see you next week. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you. Thank you.